This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. I want to start off by saying thank you for something personal. Um, in the uh, 170 or so episodes I've done, uh, I haven't had to cancel on a guest. And last week, I woke up feeling really, really bad. And uh, I'm new to the world of tofu, especially d- delivery tofu. <laughs> and it was a big mistake. <laughs> and I woke up and I thought, you know, this will, be the, this will probably be the most unpleasant episode for you. <laughs> I would still enjoy it, but you'd be looking at me like, are you okay? And I was sweating and I was in bad shape. So, green around the gills a bit yeah I was turning into I was turning into tofu actually I think I I felt like I was tofu so I had to cancel and I and I, I really I it means a lot to me that you were willing to reschedule quickly but Hello. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better thank you thank you and I I think it may by accident have been a wise decision because the last week so much has happened and I think there's a lot of comparisons especially when you see it on social media. Some of them may be valid, some may not, but it's worth exploring. And I think it's just the moment is so profound, regardless, that oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it may actually divert the conversation a bit into new terrain. So thank you, Rotten Tofu, for giving us more material to discuss. <laughs> the third thing I'm going to thank you for, I have a long list. I'll leave it at just a few. Third thing is that you complimented me, but I don't know whether it's deliberate or not. Uh, you didn't say I look so disheveled and, and in bad shape. I, I feel like I am. I don't know. I don't know if it comes across that way, but, but you know, thank you. Because I need these compliments from time to time. No, no, it's artfully scruffy. Which uh, there you go. Know. Artfully scruffy. <laughs> yeah. I should consider doing something like you're doing. Just at least put something on a bandana. Hide whatever I should because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in bad shape. I need a good trim. And I've been avoiding at least, it. At least you don't have a mullet under here. That's true. I don't have a mullet. That's true. <laughs> that, that's a that's a whole different subject altogether. <laughs> and the fact that you know what a mullet is, I think, dates us both, right? We're kind of uh, going back in time. I think a mullet is one of those things that's so horrifying that it's like, halas, it's entered into the culture as, you know, yeah. it'll always have its moment in the sun. I don't think there's any pro-mullet group. Or, or if they exist, we know them. <laughs> they're, they're yeah, I, don't know. I, I think the pro mullet group sort of like cancel themselves. Yeah, there you go. You know? yeah. <laughs> cancel themselves. They just sort of like speak. They speak their own ills. Self-canceled politics, but it only exists yeah. in the world of hair. You know, I. Can you hear that? Can you hear a dog barking? Or no? Is the is the sound okay?
No, I can't hear. Right, yeah, the sound is actually pretty bad. Therefore, I can't hear the dog barking. No, oh, no, I'm okay. kidding. I'm kidding. All no, right. no, no dogs. Which, if you hear construction my side, I apologize. There's a lot of it happening. Um, but yeah. uh, I want to start off before we get into all that we're going to discuss. Just your own mm -hmm. immediate life right now. Um, I, I know that Lebanon is reopening slowly, very slowly, mm -hmm. and just from seeing online, watching, sort of people kind of beginning to venture out more and there's just a little bit more visibility now than before how, how is your immediate life right now well the thing is i work from home so so the uh you know the lockdown when it came about it didn't change my lifestyle that much like both mm. me and my husband work from home so we're sort of first we're used to being in each other's spaces all the time and also how to give each other space because we both you know share the space and work from it. So our routine actually didn't change all that much, um, you know, and uh, and it was funny because when it first started, I had some girlfriends kind of asking me like, how, how do you stay at home together all day? Like, how do you not kill each other? I was like, we've already gone past that stage. Like, we've already negotiated all of that stuff. And, I, you know, I was like, hoping you were going to say, I already killed him. <laughs> but no, you've actually, you've been compromising. His body's right there. That's right. Yeah, you want to share. That's why I don't need to go shopping, you know. Exactly, right? <laughs> That's, well, as long as you, oh, this is morbid now. I don't know what, what where this is going. Crisis? Yeah. Meat is not getting more expensive. That's terrible. This is, yes. Um, <laughs> is this tofu or is this my husband? Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um... What was I going to say? Yeah, so so in terms of the day-to-day -day life, like that that didn't change so much, but definitely what was what felt more isolating is we're used to seeing friends and family and, yeah. you know, um, I don't know, like Beirut is very much a, one of the, the nice things about it is that you, because it's so small, you don't have to make plans way in advance. Your friends and your family are kind of like a daily part of your life. People will drop by, I mean, First, yeah. they text you, right? But like, <laughs> your friend might text and be like, "I'm in the area. Do you want to have some coffee?" Like, you you're all constantly having interaction with people. Um, we have a really close friend of ours who's like a kind of like the neighbor in the next building over. So we quarantined. Like, we essentially, he was part of our quarantine cell. Right, right, um, yeah, yeah. And and we hang out together all the time anyway. So like. That kind of that th those core things really didn't change, right. um, but what changed is like I sort of realized is um, uh, even though we did do like some kind of long walks around certain parts of the city, but um, like maybe a week ago I went out for a long walk with a with another friend who I hadn't seen for a while, and we ranged further than I had ranged, and it was very strange to kind of be in. You know, I realized like I haven't been in this part of the city for like three months now. It just, you know, it, right. it's kind of shocking, especially because it's such a small place. I think that's that's the thing. It's like it's such a tiny place, and then when you're isolated, you kind of don't realize it. You just stay in your own little neighborhood, and then when you go out of it, it suddenly feels very, um, you know, it's the shock of it's, it's like seeing someone that you haven't seen for a long time. And you're like, exactly. oh. You've you know but you feel that way about the city like you know and that's a very nice way of kind of elaborate it's it's describing the maybe the maybe that it's a unique circumstance that even in beirut where people are taking extra precautions you always have a neighbor next door 
and that the mm -hmm. circle is it's small but it still includes someone that you could see fairly regularly and maybe someone mm -hmm. you see regardless uh, just yeah. on on the other side I, I arrived to new york in late january so it's just maybe a few weeks I mean, a month before the pandemic sort of uh, spread and um mm -hmm. new york i mean forget coronavirus it's hard making plans to see anyone period whether you're very social or not, whether you want to see people or you want to isolate, it's difficult. It's a big city and people are always busy. I mm -hmm. reached the point that I, I was like, I need to see somebody. I mean, this is, this is horrible, you know, weeks on end alone. So I got to know, I, I guess it's your husband's uncle, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Muhammad mm -hmm. Bazi. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'd interviewed him for the podcast before. So just by accident, I met him as soon as I arrived and uh, we, we became friends and we kind of sort of included ourselves in that circle, that circle of contagion. I forget the exact word. Contagion circle. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And uh, problem is he lives across the city. He's not next door. So I have to commute to reach one person and see that person from time to time. I wish I wish he lived just next door or somebody was close that I could turn to regularly. But, you know, I did it. Mm -hmm. I, I would commute across Manhattan, spend an evening with him and commute home. And that would be my social life. So I, I kind of uh, I, I got to know him through the sort of through the pandemic. Um, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, did you did you feel guilty commuting across the city to go see him? Uh, guilty for bothering him? No, it's weird because like when the lockdown was at its like oh, most oh. strict, yes, you yeah. know, right, right, uh, and everybody was being super careful. Even seeing our neighbor yeah. felt almost like a like a dirty thing that we were doing in in some ways because of the general climate around it. Yes, and it it's funny because it like it it encompassed this kind of moral panic with it as well. Um, which you get caught up in it, you know? And now that we've stepped out of it a little bit, I just, I feel it's almost like we were under some kind of, I don't know, like mind control, like not yeah. mind control, but the, you know, there was some sort of weird mass haze that was taking place. Absolutely. Some people didn't get into this at all, but at one point I do remember feeling like guilty and weird. And then we talked about it and it's like, should we keep seeing our friend? And like, you know, uh, it, it, it's just so yeah my question was I where I feel like in the US there was that a lot as well and like did you feel guilty about that and like having yes you, you yeah that, there was a point I guess it would have been March I think in mid-March maybe where it or, or late March I don't remember exactly when but there was a point where everybody was kind of just staying home period that even even those careful ventures outdoors was a mm -hmm. uh, people were avoiding I noticed I know Muhammad. We, we were the only people at times in Central Park. And, you know, this is before masks were becoming more common and more widespread. Mm -hmm. We both just got masks and went home. It's like, uh, this is, we're obviously not taking this seriously enough. And we did an episode about that kind of the not appreciating the invisible danger because we're used to mm -hmm. visible danger, if that makes, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So we kind of delved into that, but we did it at a distance, <laughs> seven, eight feet apart. Uh -huh. And we did extra precautions. We kind of <laughs> cleaned up the a table. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did yeah. sort of, uh, we made sure. <laughs> but now, now, given that it's, I mean, whether it's safe or not, the fact is there are people back on the streets. And yeah. we're mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, this is fresh. This is really the last few days, at a week at most. So mm-hmm. I want to kind of explore this, but I want to start from from Beirut. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is a feeling you share. October 17, and I mean, it goes without saying, it's just a, a magical moment and that burst of energy, mm-hmm. which leads to months of collective sort of uh, almost like um, the most social experience possible where mm-hmm. people are not afraid to be next to each other. People are, in a way, cramming deliberately and sharing an experience together. And you said it earlier, Beirut is a small place. It can be very cramming at times. The limited space regardless to do anything you want. And people were taking full advantage of any space possible and expressing themselves. So I saw this, I was there. And I mean, Martyrs Square, certain days, certain evenings, it's not just euphoria it's almost like uh turning the page and and sort of getting to know each other once again in a way in a way and then (laughs) coronavirus Mm -hmm. which in its in its essence is something that you want to you are forced to stay away from each other and you're just that's it You, you cannot do that without sort of spreading the virus or risking spreading the virus people go home and then it's silence mm-hmm. that in itself is already a roller coaster sort of euphoria and then quiet mm-hmm. and then now these sort of this upswell again and i i think i'm tired mm-hmm. now i and i can appreciate the positivity of the moment and I can see it sometimes from my window here and I can go and experience it. But I think I'm exhausted because the highs are exhausting. They're not uh-huh. just, it's not just positive energy. It takes some energy to express all that positivity. And then the lows are very low. And I think I'm, I'm worn out. Now, I just want to ask you because this is something, it's an, it's an emotion that I think you've eloquently explained in, in various ways. And most recently was a Lit Hub piece. And I'll just sort of reference it here. And I'll, I'll link it to the, to the episode in the details box. Letter from Beirut, from revolution to pandemic. I'm just going to add one thing. From pandemic to whatever is going on right now, to protest. And it's sort of... Uh, I, w- I would call it revolution as well. I mean... Revolution to pandemic to... Re- maybe back to the revolution pandemic. I, I don't even know what to call this, but... You spent, I think, a lot of time and a lot of a lot of effort in reflecting on your own immediate sort of life and what's been happening in Beirut in a diary form. Are you tired, given that there's these sort of waves of protest and then going home and sort of staying alone, isolating, going back out, probably going back home, that kind of recurrence? Mm-hmm. Financial stuff we can get into sort of later. I know it ties in naturally, but just the emotional scale. Mm-hmm. Does any of that resonate with you? And I know that you're not, I know that you're in Beirut still. I know that Beirut has its own sort of momentum. Mm-hmm. But does, does any of that feeling of just sort of exhaustion resonate? 
Yeah, I mean, I was freaking exhausted. I, the thing is, like, we were, um, you know, we were, since October 17th, we were out on the streets for the first two months pretty much every day. Um, yeah, almost every day. Um, and, like, obviously, you know, you would go home, you would, but, like, let's say the first two, three weeks, it was just, you go home, you, like, wash up, Maybe you eat, you go back out on, like, you're just out in the streets all day. Um, and it was, like, very sustained action. And there was a lot of euphoria, and it was amazing. And there were, like, ups and downs, because there were also, like, some violent crackdowns. And there was, you know, yes. there was, on a smaller scale, there was a lot of the rhetoric that I'm hearing now, you know. Uh, like, just this very tired discourse that, you know, of how to divide people, which is that, you know, these are outside infiltrators and agitators and, like, you know, focusing just on um, violence and things like that. But, like, so for the first couple of months, it was uh, it was almost daily. And then we had weekly march. There was, like, several times a week it continued so there were yeah. things going on but it had gotten more and more violent but like people were still showing up there were less and less people showing up but there were still people showing up so it was a very long period of sustained action yeah. and it was incredibly exhausting and at the same time also um you're kind of seeing it crumble away from you little by little like you know they vote the new government in you know that it's like they're just the exact same people just with like in, it's like tier number two right mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. the, the helpers of the guys that were there before but you know every single one of them you know who their political backing is you know what political parties want them in power you know that nothing's changed you still have to keep going so frankly when the pandemic came and, and i'm not the only one who felt this way mm. it it felt like the part of the relief that i described there is like Oh, good. Like I, I can just like stay home now. Like I don't have yeah. to yeah, yeah, go yeah. out in the streets because there were times also when I was like really tired and like sort of struggling with depression and you know where I'd like force myself out and then I think, do I want to go? Do I not want to go? And like every single time, it was like this huge, you know, towards the end, it was almost like an existential. Like, do I believe in change? Is this gonna make a difference? Like, you know, get off your ass and go. And like, it was like every time I sort of had to ask myself, like, do you have the courage to like put your body where your ideas are? And you know, like, and sometimes I really didn't want to. And then I'd have these talks with myself. Well, if you don't want to, then what you're saying is you want other people to fight for your rights and you want them to mm, get exposed mm. and you want them to get tear gas so that you can stay at home, but they can, you know. So it was just a constant sort of fighting with myself. So when the pandemic came and it was like, all right, lockdown and like there's no more, you know, uh, there's like, there's no more going out onto the streets. There was a part of me, obviously, that was disappointed because um, I think I talk about it in this issue. There was like a really big sort of action that we were all gearing up for and right. I was starting to get like, okay, like excited about it but there's another part of me that felt like hey okay look I can just rest and yeah it was the first time where you could just like rest and like you don't feel guilty because the other times when I would like take a weekend off or whatever I would feel super bad about it you know 
I, like I didn't, it's not like, oh, I deserve to stay at home or that. And like everybody was struggling with these feelings. Everybody that I talked to, some people had more energy than others. Um, some people were just like, and, and of course the people who have a lot of energy, you look at them and you think like, I should be able to do that as well. Like, you know, they have a million other things, like they're still raring to go. It's, you know, it's, it's today I saw this, um, uh, this tweet and because, and it articulated something that I had been thinking about as, as well, which is like, um, it was this idea about like how pessimism is, um, you know, like, uh, like authorities want you to remain pessimistic. Mm, right. Mm. Um, and it's very true because I think that what happened with, uh, with the Thaura when it, when it like during those times of euphoria is it like it blasts open all the parameters of the known world so even if you go back to you know real life whatever that is first of all it's never the same again but like let's say you go back and things are like now they're more repressive than they were before they're more difficult than they were before regardless i feel like it allowed you to see things and dream about things and imagine things like you know in a way that you like never thought possible. It's like all of a sudden you can see into other dimensions and just that little glimpse that you get, I feel like that has profound potential for the future. Yes. Um, you know, so, so you find so, but then in those lower moments where like you're really exhausted, you're just fighting yourself. You're like, you can't be pessimistic. You have to be optimistic. It's just like, it's, you know, I don't think I've ever, I think that's one of the reasons also that I was like keeping a diary during this time is because, I mean, generally I'm always in dialogue with myself, you know, um, <laughs> and I think like that's why I, this is my chosen career because it's like, you know, that's just kind of a, like an extension of my own neuroses that like, you know. Um, <laughs> so that's real isolation right there. It's like, oh, I have the voices in my head to turn to what isolation oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what isolation what? we're having so much fun today. we're having a great time can, can we come to the protest uh, uh yeah <laughs> but lena you're you're actually you're touching on many things that resonate with me on a on a personal level and before we get into and you've said a lot and there's a a few points i want to get uh, tackled but just it's it's worth saying this that the 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 lit hub piece uh is my life I mean that's that's my that's my memory of of growing up in in Beirut, and I think it's a generational sort of it's mm -hmm. it's something we all experienced, and it's within that experience there's things that wouldn't make sense to anyone else that didn't live that life, and that includes nostalgia for the war, and mm -hmm. and and it's not the violence of the war, it's not nostalgia for for people getting killed, it's not that, it's nostalgia of something that, in a way shielded us i think to a point at home kind of gave us that comfort at home mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's and that's very different than than anything else that kind of i want to share something with you here that you kind of you detail it it's so well in, in the piece i remember being in my grandmother's apartment in the 1980s uh this may be 85 84 85 and there was a car bombing outside at the intersection and uh, what area was this this is shera munla in Tripoli. This is uh, okay. up north. We couldn't okay. get to Beirut during the civil war because of the, the Green Line. So we would mm -hmm. fly into Syria and then take that mm -hmm. long journey to Tripoli. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
so there's a car bombing just that just outside against a checkpoint on the street and uh, I'm, I'm very young I'm four or five years old but it's one of my earliest memories mm-hmm. and we're all there's panic there's panic because we thought my grandmother died she had just left the building to go buy something she survived but I remember this going to a wall in the apartment going looking for one hole that was probably used for illegal electricity or generator electricity I don't know what it's used for there was a hole that I could sort of peer through and I wanted to watch what was happening outside through that little wall uh, that little hole and I don't get disturbed by that memory actually I'm comforted by that memory even though a very disturbing circumstance outside but I felt okay and I felt almost like there's an innocence there I enjoyed it, and I'd actually go repeatedly. I'd look outside through that little hole in the wall. It may have even been a bullet that sort of, you know, made its way into the apartment. I have no idea what that little hole was. Uh, one time I looked inside, and I didn't realize there was a cockroach coming in. So I, that may have been the last time I looked at it outside. <laughs> that. But 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 it's just that there's that memory of of I don't know what it's it's coziness, it's comfort, it's that protection maybe inside mm-hmm. from what's happening outside. Mm-hmm. And you get into some of that in, in the piece, and it resonated with me right away. There's something else that you described, which is that long journey of disappointment. And you're talking about exhaustion through disappointment. Modern Lebanese history is <laughs> one of repeated disappointment. And I think, and I don't know if this, this resonates with you, it's not just the disappointment that's tiring, it's the expectation that when things appear to line up the right way, and they don't, the disappointment turns into something else. And that may be depression, maybe. Mm. It's almost like uh, opportunities that are never captured and we sink a little further. And I kind of, I got the feeling, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, that that is what the mood stabilizer theme is all about, trying to make sense of that sort of up and down of modern Lebanese history. And I don't know if M is memory or if m is medicine i don't know who m is when you sort of at the beginning it may be both it may be neither but it's that kind of it takes its toll on a population regardless mm-hmm. and that to me has been the sort of roller coaster that i want to get off of i don't want to be on anymore i want to just reach the top and stay there there's no need to go back down repeatedly so let me start from there. Does any of that does any of that link up to your sort of own adolescence, maybe your childhood, that stage of life where we're that those formative years in Beirut? And do you have that kind of feeling of it's hard to just keep getting disappointed over and over? Otherwise, it's just the the whole purpose is lost. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think. Uh... I think again, one of the reasons why I write is to make sense of all of this, you know, in many ways. And and through that as well, I've, I guess I've learned to think about things in a particular way. And I, there is a part of me that is very tempted to pathologize the Lebanese as a whole, you know. And this is something that we do very well here in this country. And no Lebanese are this, well Lebanese are that, and da da da. You know, like this very kind of like all Lebanese are X or all Lebanese are Y. And like, I do fall into that sometimes. Um, 
And obviously, yes, like it, it is a history of disappointment, but it's also a history like, you know, the the sort of I think the the big um, the big fable that uh, we all grew up with, you know, is the is the the idea of the war of others on our soil, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, we lived this 15-year civil war, and it's a civil war, but it's the war of others, you know. It's we were not responsible for it. Other people provoked us. And like, there's vastly different narratives that everybody has about what this civil war is, right? Yeah. Um, just like there's vastly different narratives of how people look back on the war. Like, it's interesting, you right, and I were right. children during the war. Um, so there is this idea of like childhood and, and comfort and being indoors and you know but the people who are slightly my friends who are slightly older than me who experienced it as teenagers are nostalgic for the complete excitement of being a teenager against this like lawless backdrop right you know right where you could do whatever the fuck you wanted it was like cowboys wild west like also depend if you're a boy or a girl or you know um people of my parents generation have different memories right so so it's already very varied that way, right? Sure. And, yeah. and that's normal because it's like a good chunk of our history. It's 15 years. It wasn't like one or two years. It was, you know, it was like, and when it started, everybody had this thing of like, oh, it'll be over any day now, yeah, any exactly. day now, yeah. any day now. And then, you know, 15 years pass and, and like, so. Um, any so year, think, any year now. <laughs> that's really what yeah. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to come back to this, the, to the idea of like pathologizing. But um, I think partly also is, you know, this myth of like the war of others on our soil. Um, it allows us to kind of innocent ourselves mm, from mm. war, you know. And when people say Lebanese are this and that, they usually don't mean themselves. They mean those <laughs> other Lebanese right. people, yeah. right? Like, not me and my friends and family. We're the ones who see the Lebanese for the crooks, liars, pieces of shit. Uh, I don't know how to be, etc. Like whatever it is that you have, and so um, we excuse ourselves and we recuse ourselves from like you know that. And and at the same time, it's almost saying like we're just like this. We can't help it. Yeah. We suck all of these ways, <clears throat> right. and, you know, yes. and our society sucks in all of these ways. And what I thought was so, so beautiful about the Thaura is it blasted all of that into smithereens. Like there was a while where, you know, it's actually kind of hard for me even to talk about it or to think about it too intensely without getting very emotional um, because... Uh, I'm just very moved by remembering that and I'm very moved by by remembering the fact that like we still had all of our social ills we still like these problems did not go anywhere we have like major structural inequalities in the country we have so much shit that needs to be reformed and we're all complicit in it in so many various different ways right but there was a point where people were like you know, all of these myths about the Lebanese are this and the Lebanese are that was no longer there, you know? And it made me realize that these things that we tell ourselves that we are X and we are Y, there are ways to sort of keep ourselves kind of locked into a particular reality 
where then we don't need to change it because this is who we are. Right. You know. Uh, so so we the, don't the, need the, to try and you know, but the just better. so the justifications were shattered in that sense the sort of uh, those knee-jerk sort of justifications that this is why things are like this th- those were thrown away at that, at that yeah partly yeah. that but also what was thrown away was the idea that we can't make any change you know right 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 like we can't make any change because our country just sucks and we suck and we're sectarian and everything is horrible and th- that's the way things are and the Lebanese are sectarian right like I'm not but the Lebanese are sectarian. So, right. you know, it's so I think what what shattered was like, it's like, no, we don't need to like we can make like things can change and they will be difficult and they will be like the road is long. But like we saw a glimpse of the possibility of that, you know? Yeah. And I, I share that sentiment that the, the the possibility for change was at its peak for the first time in my lifetime. I mean, I mm-hmm. don't think and it's it'll be hard to recreate that kind of sentiment it doesn't come out superficially it does it's not right. a forced emotion it just sort of bursts on its own mm-hmm. and and i mean we did capture that moment but i guess the that and i don't know if it's maybe uh maybe it's memory of disappointment or maybe it's actually the fear of something else which is something i want to get into that violence and i'm going to use the word carefully here mm-hmm violence in the loosest definition not trying to sort of uh, position it in one element or another just the the images of violence whatever that is that that's always in the background and i th- i think that's that includes the civil war generation mm-hmm. maybe a little less so that tapers off in the post-war generation it kind of accelerates upwards the earlier you go so grandparents are the most reluctant usually usually Parents tend to have some caution. Our generation is testing the waters. And then the youth, and I'm sorry, I don't mean that we're not young, but, uh, you know, we're not, we're not it's 18. It's all right. I own it. I own we're it. Not, we're not 18. We're, we're yeah. you know, we're not, in our, we're, not, we're not born in the 21st century. Let's put it that way. We're born in the previous century. That the, the, the bulk of the youth don't care. It's like, get, get over it. You know, don't worry about this stuff. We're better than that. This doesn't mean quote civil war this doesn't mean that we're going to collapse um and i i guess that i'm gonna take the new york example and ask if this uh if this relates to you i have that same feeling here Uh and it may be a flaw where i look at the need for change as something healthy the positivity of the protest movement is very attractive it's seductive actually it's seductive uh, and and the unifying message is so sort of justified that there's no need to even question it. But then you see the looting and you see that kind of violence. And I have that hesitation. And I think it goes back to memories of, 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 of Lebanon, I think. Mm. Um, and I kind of, I, I stay away from it. I don't engage. In... I had some of that in Beirut. Whether or not I was siding with the ultimate goal... I did have that reluctance when I saw it. Like more than reluctance, actually, it's like I, I don't know if that's the right way. Kind of a severe apprehensiveness. Yeah, it's. I think it's a number of things that kind of line up at the same time. And I don't know if that's a bad thing, or if that's just hmm. a natural reaction to having lived through the other form of violence, which is 
the Civil War era of violence, which is something that I don't think anyone really wants to relive. That's a different type of violence. So that the linking, I guess, does that resonate with you? Or, or do you see it differently? Do you see that there's the sounds of New York? I'm sorry about that. It's happening every it's right. Yeah. <laughs> do you see that that linking is wrong? That one should be able to break out of that sort of... Uh, you should be able to tolerate that kind of violence and at the same time appreciate the larger goal um i mean i think i think it's something that is quite personal but like i will like i think that fear of violence is uh is one of the ways that the state uses to sort of keep people um in line and in rank Mm. and make them afraid of going out to protest and you know so whether it's those threats are like the violence that is going to be done onto you by the security state apparatus like Masalan you've seen in like Syria and Egypt and you know etc so exactly. you have to like break the the fear of that right. to go out into the streets mm-hmm. in Lebanon I think what the big fear was yes we were afraid of the cops but we were more afraid of each other and right. we were more afraid right. that we were going to devolve into violence and that this would lead to another civil war. And I know there were people, I didn't feel this way, but there are people, again, of my friends who are slightly older, some of them were really panicking. Like they were in between euphoria and total panic. Right. Like that first week or first week and a half until it became clear that the only violence is coming from, you know, the Derek and the army and mm-hmm, the whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I, you know, I don't consider looting or quote unquote rioting violence. Mm. I don't think violence done to public, uh, private property is violence. Um, I think looting is actually pretty, um, like there was the, the looters uh, in Beirut, like the first couple of days who went into the Puma store downtown. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They they smashed it open. They stole all the shoes, and they left their own shitty shoes behind. Okay, (laughs) and I think that's beautiful. Like, I really, you know, um, I'm not glorifying violence, but I do think that like the the violence that is much more frightening is the violence that comes from the state's crackdown um, onto people. And I think that um, I think that the kind of like when you see attacks against like big chain stores or like here attacks against the banks or these are legitimate symbols that people like are enraged at right because there's spaces that have shut you out or there's spaces who's like it's like here um you have cops guarding the banks you know who will then crack their batons down on people's heads and it just shows you how completely messed up people's priorities are. But I will mm. tell you that whenever I went to a protest, I was never afraid of my fellow protesters, ever. So, so you know? in that sense, it's, I, I hope I'm understanding it right, that you can prioritize the risk of certain types of violent expression so that an attack on a symbol, let's say, whatever that symbol is, or a simple retail store, whatever, whatever, non, not people against people violence. So just a, there's an attack on some form of infrastructure that that does not necessarily worry a, uh, 
person who wants to see positive change because the real worry is social violence. And if that happens, then there's kind of a real risk at losing the, the message. Did I, did I get that right? That it's like a, yeah. you can kind of tear it in a way. Yes. For okay. me, any violence that isn't being done onto the human body, um, you know, um, unless you're throwing water bottles at cops, but like uh, any violence that isn't being done onto the human body is, it's not that it's like justifiable. I don't even think, I think that that question of like, is it justifiable or is it not? What you have when you have a spontaneous uprising, when you have a moment of revolution, it's sort of like, all bets are off, right? Mm, uh, mm. Things explode out of it, and like whatever legitimate feelings that people have, they are going to explode outward, and they are yeah. going to be expressed in certain ways that are peaceful, certain ways that are not peaceful. But like these are all legitimate expressions of, you know, like it's a it's um, like people have been repressed for so long and sort of not allowed to speak out and not allowed to express um, their legitimate aspirations for a different kind of life. Um, oh, wow. I, uh, it's louder for me than it is for you. Yeah, but, no, no, but it's, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's become, it's since coronavirus started, yeah. I just, what I think is really interesting about the Lebanon protests to a large extent is we've had waves of protests before. They were never as, they were never big enough to be called a thoda ever. But there were like the protests in 2015, uh, there were protests in 2011, uh, there were the protests in 2005, which I'm not going to get into that. Um, even in the, the in 2019, you know, in October 17, that entire summer, there were like these uh, protests that were taking place in the Palestinian camps and labor strikes and, you know, against the, the labor laws that we have that are like very aggressive and terrible. So there was a lot of momentum there. There was, you know, there were things that were building. People were, you know, um, people were sort of starting to come to a point where they were fed up. So because I think there were these protests before, this um, idea of the outside agitators and the idea of like um, uh, illegitimate violence was very largely uh, rejected by the protesters. So um, let me ask you though, let's do like a bit of mental gymnastics here. Let's apply, because I, if there's a, big enough population may it may not be the majority but let's say it's a sizable group of of citizens let's say who see those images differently and but may share the same goals what could be done so that disappointment does not recur and i guess the the question is so that we see that kind of momentum stick and turn into something for the better positive change and permanent change do you sense at all that those images, justified or not, or forget the justification word altogether, those images, period, do they have a way of turning off enough people at any given moment where that the protest movement kind of diminishes naturally? Only because of that sort of instinctive reluctance on some people, or, or let's say a portion of any movement that may not want to sign up to that kind of expression. And I guess the question is more more than just the natural decline over time where people do go home at some point. I mean, 
October, November, December, January is very long and, and it's tiring. It takes up a lot of people's energy and patience. But that violence may contribute to that in a way that is counterproductive to the larger goal. Whether it's here, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in Lebanon or anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, violence is exhausting. But again, I will, I, you know, and this is something that I, like, I'm very far away from the U.S. I'm, I have friends who are there and I have friends who are going to protest and who are, have been talking about what it's like. I also see from my Twitter feed that largely they've been very peaceful mm. um, and they've had that, that sort of same euphoria and excitement of people coming together and like just that incredibly beautiful feeling of people coming together. And, you know, and this was happening to me, like in the beginning, um, there was there were like lots of people, including my family, like my aunts were coming to the protests and my cousins and things like that. And then as time went on, uh, and then it quote unquote became more violent, they were like, we don't want to be part of this, like this is sort of veering off course and etc. But what had changed was not the protests. It was the way that the media was covering the protests. Mm, so mm. at first they were a little bit gung-ho. All they were seeing really uh, was, was when it devolved into violence. And when it devolved into violence, it was because the cops were making it very they would just decide at a certain point now is the time to crack down and they just like mm -hmm, the tear gas mm -hmm. would start falling the rubber bullets would start flying everybody would start running and like you know many and so i would leave at that point but many people would stay and sort of like do this thing it's called kerrufer which is what they're trying to do is like you leave and then you come sure. back yeah. you know and people were sort of playing these games with the cops but it's also partly because it's like they're doing this to disperse you and they want you to leave so you i mean that this is when the fight starts is like you stay you stand your ground you don't you you know you make them sort of have to fight you for a very long time right but what i want to say is like so my aunts would send me messages and be like please stay safe it seems very scary etc cetera, etc cetera. and a lot of times it was not it was not scary. It was not like what was happening was not. They were. They had an idea now of the protests mm. because they, because also of this. Like another thing that they bought into, um, and a lot of people here bought into was that narrative of the outside agitators. Um, because in Lebanon, it's like that is the thing that you are, that is that everybody is most afraid of, right? Because. Um, uh, you know, in other parts of the world, people might laugh at conspiracy theories, but like, you know, we live them here. And not just like Lebanon, South America, whatever, you know, when, and no, yes, like the U.S. has funded, uh, uh, you know, regime changes and, uh, and this and that, and like violent extremist groups and, you know, Iran has funded, et cetera, et cetera. So these things, um, these things are not that far-fetched. So when they start using that uh, narrative of outside agitators and then people are like, oh no, I thought this was like a revolution for Lebanon. I want no part of this. And then they start to like leave the protest sites. So I think it's a combination of exhaustion. Mm. It's also, a, a, you know, and partly is like what the media tells people, um, you know, because the state is not interested in having you protest. That's not what they want. Of course, of course. You know? Yeah, no, um, no, yeah, for sure. 
everything in their arsenal to sort of disperse it. But like, yes, middle class people, they are going to be uncomfortable with the violence. I yeah, mean, okay, no, no, but you just okay. I'm I'm glad you, in a, in a way, you phrased what I was trying to say in like five words. That that which ten, yeah. tends to be the sort of determining group in most circumstances that if they move a certain direction by default things do kind of fall into that whatever direction they're moving and i don't i know it's not this is not a scientific sort of uh, i'm not thinking of it academically here just in terms of it's a big enough size of the pool that if they don't see it a certain way it's very it's all the more difficult to sort of attract people towards mm -hmm. that that so yeah the the discomfort from that middle class or yeah yeah i always see that 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 in, that is a big hurdle mm -hmm. to overcome in, in any protest movement and, of course yeah. yeah and that that could be here too in in the states i mean it's not this is not a sort of a special thing for repeated demonstrations in lebanon but anywhere that 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 becomes a big challenge yeah, absolutely. And I think it will happen more and more in the States. I mean, right now it's in the very like exciting early days. I think what sustains like protests in the beginning is even just like the the, the euphoria of the shock of like you mm -hmm, go there mm -hmm. and you look around and you're like, are we are we really all here? Like, are we all here really doing this? Like, you know, and yeah. that brings you back and back and back again, like just that sort of and it just keeps blooming and blossoming and like just that excitement of like, this is us, like, this is really, you know, I remember in the beginning in the protests, it's just like looking at people and, you know, just people kind of like randomly saying nice things to each other or hugging each other. Like there was this Absolutely. really like this kind of incredible energy of like, this is us, we're actually doing this. And like, yes, but as time goes on, um, I mean, how do you build, sustain, sustained movements right there's people who are organizers who are like really good at this stuff mm -hmm. who think about these things who kind of i mean you groups are formed coalitions are formed different kinds of things uh you start to think about like okay how like so yes there is the the pressure that you put on in the streets but like also in lebanon there's a lot of stuff that like started happening behind the scenes whether it was like one of the most amazing things about the protests was like the sort of how the squares turned into these like open yeah yeah classrooms in a sense almost yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there were like lectures every night about all kinds of things like i learned so much about the constitution i didn't know <laughs> i learned so much about like law that you know, I didn't know it's a pretty decent document it's not so bad when you read it it's it's quite impressive that we have this thing and we don't apply it it's it's yeah, a the, the, yeah. The problem is that it's application and it's collective application. Right. You know, you know um, but Lena, I wanna I wanna touch on two two other things, and I know I'm already taking too much of your time, so I won't take. No, no, not at all. But I just want to say one thing. Yes. Which is that just about like because we we're talking about like middle class mm -hmm. involvement and stuff, and I think that like a lot of people in Lebanon they continued being involved for two reasons. One, because I think. It was where other people, where they had gone home before at certain times when the going got tough. I think with everybody, it was like, well, what's what happens? Like, if we go home, are we willing to like go back and live in the shit that we were living in? Like, it just felt so like really 
because what happens with protests is the people who have nothing left to lose that's who you know like Janis Joplin said you know that's <laughs> like that's like the, a form of freedom right but even though the middle class people can go back and have relatively nice lives there was such a feeling of disgust yeah that it that's reached true into. and so what happened was like people started organizing in different ways like they started forming unions and talking about like how to form unions, how to strike at the various universities, how to like organize with uh, smaller groups, how to, you know, and these things, I think we're going to see them come to fruition over the long term, but they take a long time. Like our unions were decimated, like That's just true. completely decimated. So now they're being built again from the ground up. And first people are learning what the fuck, you know, uh, unions are like you're absolutely be, right you know? you know I actually attended some of these discussions and they were so impressive given the leadership we got used to that it, it, it's like stark contrast a tent in Martyrs Square has a healthier debate over let's say transportation than the entire ministry of whatever I mean that's it's just like it was so stark contrast and, and then you're like oh my god we have so many brilliant people and like we've just been caught up in this narrative and oh, there's nobody in Lebanon, like no one's qualified. And then you go to these lectures and you're like, you know, it's like so many people are qualified. So many people are fucking brilliant. So many people know what they're talking about, you know. I, I, I agree. And I, I was I'm very, very fortunate that I just was able to see this on a daily basis. And I ended up doing several episodes with with lecturers from Martyrs Square and it was fantastic. It was actually the best kind of classroom you can think of. I mean that's it's happening there in the middle of the protest movement you have a discussion about exactly what they're fighting for. And I I mean I'll avoid the disagreement about 2005. I know you kind of hinted at that. We don't need to get into that. But just the I saw these these recent months of it's almost like every decent idea in modern Lebanese history lining up, which includes domestic accountability, which I took from the You Stink movement, that that was really the beginning of a, like a punch. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, mm -hmm. we need to get rid of at least some corruption because this is unmanageable. Mm -hmm. And You Stink is just the right phrase for that kind of punch. We, mm -hmm. we might disagree, we don't need to get into it. I saw 2005 for the better part as one of sovereignty. But 2019 seems to be everything that needs to happen for Lebanon to finally emerge from the civil war, which to me was the ultimate goal. Get out of the civil war era and, and move on to something better. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to just, there's two things I want to uh, address here. And I, I like that I, I read your pieces in the New York Times and then I don't even, I mean, it's nice to get to know you later because I, I stumbled upon uh, two pieces you wrote, one not not too long ago, about pandemic in the New York mm -hmm. Times. And then mm -hmm. I think it was late last year, one about Ponzi or Ponzi scheming, mm -hmm. if, if mm -hmm. that's the, yeah, Ponzi and pa pandemic. And you know, the reason I find this entertaining, at least for me, for me personally, is because it's so much contrast to the visit Beirut, the number one destination of the world, you know, go spend a summer. <laughs> visiting the wineries of Lebanon and get a kick out of the ski slopes. You know, these sort of like almost cheesy, oh, yeah. you know, oh, these. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh -huh. and I think it was 2010 or maybe nine, the number one destination, New York Times, you know, 
and now we have the other <laughs> sort of here you go there's the pandemic here's the ponzi scheme get used to it i i want to touch on these two issues i know they're huge mm -hmm. and each one probably deserves its own series mm -hmm. the first pandemic because mm -hmm. it's not pandemic of coronavirus disease it's one of hunger and that is something that i don't know in lebanon I have not, even in the darkest years that I grew up in, personally in the 1980s, hunger was not a, it was there, but it wasn't talked about this way. And okay. it's a real issue now. So let's start there, because I think the Ponzi scheme is it's sort of, I mean, it's it's a difficult subject altogether. But that issue of hunger, I I don't want to see Lebanon go through more pain to reach a better place. I'd like to see Lebanon at least at least try to cope with the difficulties it has right now so that it gets to a better place. But there's no need for further pain. Yet I see that it might be a reality, that things are going to get worse. There's been a debate, mostly online, but also in, in sort of different outlets in, in, in the U.S. and in Lebanon, about whether or not any institution can come to the rescue and at least alleviate that level of suffering. And I, I don't know if, I don't know if there's any other way out that, that whether Lebanon can handle that kind of pain on its own. And I just wanted to know your reflections on that. We know that there is serious economic pain. We know that hunger is a reality. Is this something that Lebanese should turn to from outside for help? Or is that part of the problem? that this is not something that you should look away from. You should kind of deal with it. If it hurts more, it hurts more. But focus in the way we've been trying, I guess, for the last few months, domestic accountability. Forget the yeah. foreigners. This is all about Lebanon. So just maybe your own personal reflection on that. I don't know. Like, well, you're talking about pain as like an emotional thing. But I, more like a physical, physical, almost like uh, that this is going to hurt, literally. I mean, this is real. Mm -hmm. but but also sure emotional of course yeah no no but what i mean is like 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 that pain is not an abstract thing it's made up of like a thousand different cuts mm. and they are all things that can be firmly placed at the feet of the government like it's not uh that's what i mean it's like this idea of pain it feels like such an abstract thing like should we hurt more? Should we not? We are heading into disaster because we have people who have firmly placed us in the maw of disaster because they do not give a fuck because they have spent years lining their own pockets, fixing the banking system to benefit them and their cronies, setting up a system that is just all nepotism, all sectarianism, all, you know, and basically like it's sectarian capitalism where the wealth is in the hands of a few which is the way the whole world functions but here it's so insidious and so like the level of corruption that exists is like you know with all rude eye as they say like <laughs> you, did, you did it with the accent now it's legitimate yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I, love, I love the one-to-one -one translation of like lebanese uh, idioms yeah. in english it's just like it's so weird <laughs> in my heart. but anyway like it's just incredibly shameless like beyond shameless kind of corruption right that yeah. exists yeah. and if you talk about it you know you can have like uh, a fucking uh, 
a politician who gets mad that you wrote something about him on Facebook and get you like hauled in for questioning before the general of prosecutor. Course, of course, you and that, that's happening so more. It's increasingly happening. It's yeah. happening yeah. more and more. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is. You know, it's not like this abstract pain. It is like a very deliberate scheme. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what happened was we knew we were heading into disaster. We knew that the economic collapse was coming. You know, we knew that all of these things were, were coming and they did not. And even with the train coming towards us and everybody going, we're on the fucking tracks, they stepped off of it. And they took like the weakest members of society, you know, and the people who are most vulnerable and, you know, them in their body armor, they stepped off and they put them in the oncoming light of the train. Like this is what this is the solution that they have found now with the banks and everything that they've done. Essentially, because they don't the people who like have the most don't want to have what they call a fucking haircut. They're amputating people's limbs instead. You know, if you want to take the metaphor that way. People are having their limbs cut off like the people who are paying the highest price for this are the people who like the less money you have the poorer you are going to to be because of the way that they have set up this so-called rescue scheme. So I don't know what happens. I was reading this thread. Actually, there's uh, something called the synapse network. They do a lot of oh, like, yeah. really interesting. Yeah, yeah I've seen this yeah. research stuff. Yeah. So they had this thread about like actually what Lebanon would have to do to qualify for an IMF loan. Yeah, yeah, and I saw this actually, yes. <laughs> you you, you yeah. kind of read it and you're like, I kind of wish they would, you know. Yeah. It, it's, you know, because there's so much uh, accountability that they are going to have to provide right. to show that like, okay, there is not a single cent that is going into their pockets. They cannot do this. Of course not. You know, <laughs> they cannot do this. Yeah. They, the system has been set up in such a way that like corruption is endemic to it. You know what I mean? Right. Like sectarianism and capitalism are like so like they're just like rotten fucking barnacles to each other. It's okay that I'm swearing so much, right? It's not a. I've, I've, I've done 100, 170 <laughs> episodes. I think, yeah, this is the one that will get flagged, but that's okay. It's okay. It'll okay. just have a little parental advisory. <laughs> I just, I get. I've counted them. I think we've hit 15, but that's okay. That's okay. It fits the moment. You're, there are people that are. I mean, we know people that curse far more. So that's uh, yeah. It's just don't get me started about the Lebanese government. No, but okay. but but uh, sorry, I just want to. Maybe I asked it maybe the wrong way. I guess I meant in terms of just that severe issue, which is it shouldn't even be a political problem. It's starvation. That kind of uh, that potential reality that we may see happening in Lebanon for enough people to go into hunger. Is it something that I, 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 I'm getting from you that it, the the regime is so incompetent and so corrupt and so oh no 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 they're very competent they're very competent mm. at keeping them and their cronies happy they're not incompetent they are right. very good at what they do but, very good at impar impoverishing people and hunger is political hunger has always been incredibly political that's why certain people go hungry and other people don't and there's a very clear political program behind that okay but you within, know what i mean but within that within that Let's say, I guess what I'm asking is, is this is it appropriate to search for help or aid outside of Lebanon to alleviate that problem, or or is it is that would that feed into the problem 
that this would sort of preserve the what you're describing the most the most quote competent only for its own sort of crony capitalism needs but otherwise intoler intolerant towards anything else so i, I guess it's, it's just um where would you get the help from if if the regime is not interested in in providing or 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 do they have to provide for their own sur survivability now that they're faced with the reality that they have to do something otherwise they're out too i mean i guess i'm i'm trying to see what what happens in in the near future regarding regarding hunger i mean there's powerful political parties that in not so coded ways are trying to give the message of well our constituents won't go hungry you mm, don't have to mm. worry about our constituents yeah. and that's how you bring people back into the fold right mm -hmm. but this question of like you know should lebanon look outside should not i mean i don't practically who is going to bail us out like who exactly you know yeah you don't lend money to you know your friend who squanders it all the time like right. you just at some point you like who's gonna lend lebanon money like it's not it's a moot question of who's gonna lend us money you know yeah. what i mean i mean right. what we need is sort of like like things are gonna get very bad and we know that things are gonna get very bad but like what we need is sort of like sustainable schemes that are going to go forward into the future and there's like many more knowledgeable people than i am who have been studying things like this and talking about like okay well then we you know we're a country who has really good uh fertile land uh, but like agriculture needs to be uh subsidized by the government right. there has to be incentives like we had we have our farmers you know who basically have to sometimes pay people to get the crops off their hands because the government has made it such so again so certain people can line their pockets that it's cheaper to import goods from foreign countries than it is to like go a few miles into the Bikar Valley and to buy from the farmers there who have like you know who are losing money on their crops a friend of mine wrote an article like a few years ago that sort of completely shocked me that the orange farmers had to pay like 3,000 lira themselves to get someone to take the oranges off their hands. Like they were paying oh, money right, the to get rid yes, of their yes. own crops. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we don't need to go hungry. This is not a thing that, but like, the government has never, uh, there has never been any kind of investment in like sustainable local you know whether it's an agriculture or industry or you know it's everything has been created um in order to um prop up the real estate market essentially yeah. Yeah, like yeah. all of these get rich quick schemes and everything else i mean it's very sad when you because like this is a country that could produce for itself that it could be better that could import things that could but it needs you know it needs a kind of program or structure to to help and i think that this is what we need now in the long term and essentially we're going to be forced now to create our own industry because we can't no longer afford to import things right you know that's true like we're yeah. going to have to find local um you know like local art alternatives to everything that we used to import whether it's like foodstuffs or like basic uh you know um hygiene products or whatever like we're gonna have to start manufacturing things here and figuring out ways of doing them right but the problem is like you have this whole supply chain so like let's say 
you have the resources, but you still have to buy and import the machines to like clean this thing for you course, or can yeah. these goods. So like we're really we're starting from from like a very low level and where we already have nothing. So it's going to take a long time, but eventually maybe it will build the economy in a way that will make it slightly more sustainable. So so I mean, and I know this is in a way we're in a way we're trying to project a bit into the future so I think that's it's so 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 fluid at the moment anyway that things could there are many sort of avenues forward but I but I'm getting the general idea is that the structure has to go and if the structure mm-hmm. doesn't go we're setting ourselves up for permanent disappointment like this this structure has to disaster actually disaster, disaster. which is a better yeah. yeah better word for that yeah okay yeah. now I'm gonna transition from that to and I know neither one of us are finance people at least I, I'm assuming you're not a hedge fund banker I don't think oh, God. that's not your I side have... gig I don't think translator writer uh, you know <laughs> M&A I, I, have, I don't understand money I have to give a shout out to Sammy Halabi who is like one of the triangle uh, po- like uh, triangle policy who, the, who they write these policy papers that actually really explain things they're the ones who explained like the Ponzi scheme yeah, and right. even after I had read it I had to like call him and he spent like a good hour and a half on the phone with me I'm like wait so wait, wait so how does how does the money work like just you know <laughs> like explain it in like the most like you know as if I was a five-year-old you know and it's because it's not just money it's not just finance you're talking about it's everything it's poli- it's politics it's, so it's abstract yeah, no, yeah. But i mean like the actual money in the ponzi scheme it's just completely abstract you know it's like let's make up these funds and pretend they go in here and on paper you have that and you know it's just like yeah uh it's just to- totally abstract and like interest rates and this and that and like yeah it's just but with with the working knowledge that we both have and i guess i mean just the fact that you're so heavily invested in this moment you have to have a working knowledge on some economics because the core issue, I mean... The, I, I try, it's just... Yeah, no, but, and I, I guess, I mean, it kind of goes back to the beginning, which is, I mean, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate uh, example, but, um, oh, his name now escapes me. Uh, George Floyd, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So here in the US, that's the final straw. And then people go out and they demand change uh so there's a a bigger purpose now it's not just it's not just justice for george floyd's family or or even making sure that those policemen are held to account or that the minnesota police are it's not about that it's about a nationwide police yeah absolutely right so it kind of what could have ended up being a very local affair uh spread like wildfire and I mean, we know that in, in, in our era now, social media is probably the biggest sort of uh, information avenue for ideas to spread quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, a week later, we're seeing the biggest protests in recent history in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, th- so there's that. October 17, it's the WhatsApp tax is obviously not the issue, but it's the final straw. And then that sort mm-hmm. of the purpose grows and grows and grows so that now we're talking about society we're talking about more mm-hmm. than just yeah but but 
at least in the Lebanese context, maybe to a point here too in the U.S., but per particularly in the Lebanese context, there's an economic component that is so critical that you're forced to learn. I mean, you, you are reaching out to experts just to understand what happened. I mean, that, you, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so with that, um, I just want to wrap it up with your own reflection here. As somebody who's grown up in a country that's always turned to aid from abroad, and that's our life story. So when Lebanon can't fix it, when Lebanon doesn't have the capital, a foreign entity will sort of step up, maybe ask for some pressure in some ways, some, some advantages in some ways, will become heavily involved in the system in some ways. And when they're fed up, <laughs> goodbye, we can't deal with this anymore. So there's that, that's been sort of the pattern the last two decades at least. Okay. Usually Gulf countries, usually. Cedar money is locked. IMF package is being negotiated if it happens. It's in the negotiation stage. Let's assume, let's assume that it doesn't work. And let's just assume, even though the Cedar money has gone, I think, from 11 billion to 5 or 6 billion recently, it's been halved. So, so even the amount that was promised has sort of gone down. But let's, uh -huh. say, let's say there's no money from abroad. Do you think... Not try to end it in a, in a positive way, because I hope that there's a positive message here for me and for you and for everyone that's kind of invested in this. Do you think we have what it takes this time around so that we don't need to look away to solve our problems? That we have sort of now enough experience with the way this country was governed for so long and that we're so fed up that we have at least the starting point now for positive change so that maybe in a decade maybe later who knows how long it'll take we'll be able to live in a country that at least stands on its own two feet and provides basic services and meets the minimum criteria for what a state should do so uh, just a sort of uh, your own reflection on maybe the short medium term will things turn out for the better if if we don't search if we don't get help from abroad um, I guess I have to hope so. Um, That's a good answer. I have to hope. Yeah. Yeah. I have to hope so. I just really do feel that like, like the, the poison of sectarianism needs to be like excised from everybody's blood and it needs to be kind of disentangled, um, from the structure of the state. And I don't know how that happens. Like it is such a long, hard fight. And um, I don't know, but I have to say that I, even though I am very exhausted, I'm also very moved and energized and enthused by like what's happening in the US right now. Like whenever mm. there is a sort of like a outbreak of an uprising, I feel like I take strength from that. Um, I take strength from the from the fact that like people are sort of like refusing to take shit anymore. There's something incredibly powerful about saying like this is enough. Mm. There's something very powerful about having the people in power be scared. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's true. Like for them to really be frightened. Yeah. Uh, for the right reasons. For the yes. For, yes. They're frightened well, into, yeah. It yeah. fills me with joy. To think of their terror fills me with joy. Yeah. And, 
you know, and I feel like uh, if we can keep them running scared, because they should be scared, you know, as in if they don't do their jobs right, then they should be, they should fear for their, you know, for their jobs, like yeah. if nothing else, right? Um, and that's the kind, like if you live in a world where there's like true accountability for like le leaders and ru rulers where they know that they are beholden to people as opposed to, you know. So when I see this kind of spreading, it feels almost like a, I don't know, like it's a generalized philosophy. And I'd mm. like to think that things can get better here because they will get better elsewhere. And then if we do need aid from abroad, then it's like the kind of real mutual aid of solidarity of people helping people of people sort of like trying to create more egalitarian societies across the board and like maybe that sounds like insane utopia but i think we've seen enough people sort of rise up in enough countries over the last couple of years and say enough is enough that it it gives me a sense that at least like maybe people are starting to understand that they don't deserve to be like fodder for capital's machine and that they don't deserve to be the ones who are like at the bottom of the heap so somebody else can get rich that they're starting to understand that this is the way that the system works you know it's you have to be poor so these people can be rich that's you have to be poor you know and they're saying well actually maybe maybe i maybe i disagree with that system maybe i don't want to live under it anymore so you know i mean Regardless of all the circumstances and all that we're seeing, it's obvious that connectivity is so important for the moment. And you, in a way, you just reminded me right now, yesterday, the a mural of George Floyd, I think in, in Syria, in Idlib, just mm -hmm. on, a, on a broken piece of wall, in mm -hmm. war-torn, you know, and they're drawing his image. And... I, and that's crazy. I mean, to, just th this kind of reality that we're all in it together, causes are different, circumstances are different, levels of oppression are different, the struggles in general are different. It's not like everyone's on the same page all the time. Absolutely. But, but the fact that we're all watching each other and learning from each other mm -hmm. and admiring each other, I, I think is, is very, it's, it's a very... It's a very special and also a very strange moment to live through where we're seeing it happen. And, you know, we grew up at a time in where time. in yeah. real time. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we know what it's like to not have all of that. We know what it's like to be within our own walls and during the Civil War, just looking outside through a little hole, through a little hole. And we also know what it's like to not have social media and attempted demonstrations that never had that where they were more or less isolated affairs, more or less. And now, I mean, people are chanting slogans from different protest movements, and they're happening quickly, and they're happening sort of success, success, successively an instant sort of time. That doesn't sound right. None of that jargon came out right, but you know what I'm talking about. I know, I know it's, exactly what you're saying, It's yeah. fast. It's fast-paced. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So maybe there's something there that history is moving maybe a little faster than it used to from, from connectivity, and maybe mm -hmm. we'll see positive change sooner than we think. I hope so. I hope so. I Lean, really hope so. If we do another episode, uh, and you were very kind, you gave me, I mean, you're still awake. It's almost 10.30 p.m., I guess, in, in Beirut. So you're very generous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to explore literature with you. 
And maybe that's something that we can discuss one day, just your appreciation for certain authors. And I've, I've heard you sort of talk about that kind of, it's a different, different topic, but it does feed in. It does actually mm-hmm. offer some words of wisdom for what we're going through right now. Yeah. And I think I know a little bit more about it than a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about. <laughs> so I'll cancel this episode. <laughs> no, no, we'll we'll do another episode where we're. <laughs> That's if you funny. think I talk a lot now, where will you see me then? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, but then we could just literally have you just write something and send it. I'll trans. The video will just be sort of just words without your voice even just. Oh, God, no. Is that what I sounded no, like? No. That's terrible. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. It's terrible. Lena, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Thank you.